Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to be sharing with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Gemma Richards who is a voiceover artist and writer. Gemma is also host of This Food Thing podcast which is a podcast I would highly recommend where Gemma interviews various different people about their relationship with food. It really is quite fascinating. Do go and check it out. Now Gemma has a history of eating disorders and I'm really looking forward to speaking to her today to hear more about her story and how she has come to be in a place where she finally feels much more at peace with food and herself. So let's get to the interview. Hi Gemma and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi Harriet it's an absolute pleasure. So Gemma could you just introduce yourself please and say a little bit more about you? Yes, I have a podcast called This Food Thing, which is about people talking about their relationship with food. And the main question that I ask is, is food friend or foe? And then we go from there. Because I have a a long, long history of eating disorders, now recovered. And I was very curious. It took me some time to get around to it. But I was, and I always wanted to give something back, but I didn't want to be a therapist. And I didn't want to... I write, so I didn't want to write anything about it because I just I was kind of bored of it all, actually. But I wanted to give something back. And I realised that I wanted to find out how other people managed with their relationship with food, particularly when they'd had issues with food. And particularly women of my age, say women in their 40s and their 50s, because I think they often go quite unheard. I think it can often be highlighted like in the younger generation. So yes, so I launched this podcast, which is how we met. And I've just done season one. And yes, and it's very interesting, quite exciting. Mm, Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I love your podcast, actually, Gemma. I think you've had some yeah, really interesting guests. So I'm sure many people that listen to this podcast will be sort of delighted to tune into your episodes. Fantastic. (laughs) could you just say a little bit more as well actually because you've had quite a range of guests haven't you could you just give us a little sort of snippet of some of the guests that you've had on from different areas yeah everyone that I interviewed I knew I have an eclectic group of friends and I have a group of friends who have also suffered various issues like lots of people have and quite a few actually with food issues and interestingly Harriet I'd never spoken about my food issues in depth with any of my friends and nor had they to me because as far as I was concerned mine mine were the worst and mine were really bad and you know no one could come near me but my friend so my friend Roger I interviewed him first of all and then at the end of the season he interviewed me and we lived together in the late 80s early 90s and he was bulimic but we didn't talk about it and I was very bulimic and anorexic and we didn't talk about it And then I interviewed a friend of mine who's an actress who I didn't realise had been bulimic, but she was bulimic. And we talked about how she dealt with it. She's recovered now, why it happened, how she dealt with it, how she manages herself in front of a camera, which she finds excruciating, which I thought was interesting, very interesting, because she finds it very difficult every time she's in front of a camera. 
that's really quite something to manage. And then I had a young, lovely young girl on called Marley who worked in the local fruit and veg shop who told me one day as I was buying some oranges or something that she was bulimic. She's 20, 21. I, would n- I never told anybody that I had anything going on until I was well into my late early 30s other than professional people. And then I interviewed a personal trainer who I know, who is an, an ex-professional dancer and went through the whole dance school and was in the industry for 10 years and what that was like. And her issues come out through exercise, over-exercising. And then I have a lovely boxing coach who actually stepped in last minute for me, Ian mm-hmm. Streets. And I spoke to him about food and he was like my wild card because he doesn't have any issues with food, apart from the fact that he can't taste or smell anything anymore. But So we talked about eating disorders and disordered eating in the boxing industry Mm. yeah and then I have a whole load of other people lined up to interview when restrictions lift I'm going to I have quite a diverse I'm going to interview our local big issue seller who's very interesting I don't know how you manage to eat on the streets or not yeah there's a raft of people I want to talk about OCD and other addictions because I have I'm becoming more and more focused on the fact that eating disorders are Probably. Well, from in my experience, an extreme version of my OCD. I think it's quite, particularly with anorexia nervosa, I think actually it's quite common that people might have OCD as well or have, have had OCD pre the illness. I think I've had it in yeah. my experience. I think yeah. I had quite bad OCD when I was a kid and then when I was a teenager. And I think I converted it into my behaviour around food either not eating or eating and getting rid of it. Mm, yeah, and no, I, I think yeah. you're not alone. Yeah, I think I think you're really not alone there. I think because there's a lot of anxiety often, you know, I guess with yeah, OCD and with anorexia, there's a lot of anxiety underneath, isn't there? And I think often yeah. more of the OCD behaviours, yeah, often show earlier, perhaps before the food issues. I think it's all about anxieties and not being able to manage one's feelings. But I've also been reading this book about body maps and about what happens in the parietal lobe. And that's very interesting because that's a whole area of neuroscience that is as yet to be fully researched. Mm. It's kind of new to me because the book that I'm reading, it doesn't debunk talking therapies, yeah, but it does say that, that, that now with all these, there's lots of studying going on and research going on that there are areas, I'm being very general, but areas in your brain that are skewed and don't relate to your physical body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating, isn't it? And I think it just shows in a way with eating disorders, actually why sometimes they can be just so complex to treat, because I think there's just so many layers, aren't there really, physical and emotional. Yeah, absolutely. But your podcast, Gemma, it sounds, you know, such an interesting mix of people. Yeah really looking forward to hearing more of those episodes onwards and upwards Harriet (laughs) onwards and upwards (laughs) so Gemma could you just tell us a little bit about sort of your story because obviously yeah you've struggled in the past haven't you with eating disorders yeah could you sort of take us through that a little bit please well I was always obsessed with food from when I was tiny really and I always ate too much and I didn't come from a house where there was plenty of food. I talked about this a bit on the podcast, actually. It wasn't like the cupboards were bare, but the cupboards didn't have much in them. And my dad and my mum got divorced when I was about six. And my dad was very controlling around food. And so was my mum, but in different ways. My dad used to give me whatever I wanted. 
and my mum wouldn't. And I had two brothers who were always very hungry, but they were away at school. And, you know, there was that kind of gender division in our household that the men ate better than the women. Mm. The men got more. And also I was seen to be greedy. And my dad was, yeah, pretty unhelpful. I don't really need to go into that very much, but there were all sorts of food issues going on. And my, yes, it was a bit of a, it was a difficult relationship. Yeah. And and also with my mum around food. But, and then at school, I felt very out of place and became aware of feeling fat I wasn't fat but I thought I was fat and I don't know it just got worse and worse and worse until I went to and then I was obsessed with dieting I kept all sorts of calorie counter pages and diaries and then I went to college and I think again I said this in my podcast I don't like to repeat myself but I did a play I was on an acting course and we did this method called the Stanislavski method. And I played a character who was bulimic. And I'm not saying that I'm such a brilliant actress that I became this character, mm-hmm. but it was certainly a little, because I'm not a great actress at all. There's a certainly little influence. And I started throwing up and starving myself. Actually, I starved myself first and then I started throwing up and it just seemed like an ideal solution. And I did that for years and years and years and years and years. And at first it was great. It worked. And then it got worse and worse. And I got more and more unwell and yeah, just overwhelmed by it. I couldn't do anything with my life at all. I just about managed to function and hold things together. And then in my thirties, I think I did see a therapist in my twenties. I saw a psychiatrist at college. I was sent to see people. But then in my thirties, I started to well, I was just exhausted and I thought I can't really do this anymore. I had a sort of collapse at home in front of my mum and she found me a therapist who was a nurse and a hypnotherapist and specialised in eating disorders. And she was the first person that I saw and said, this is out of control and I can't cope. And can you please put me into some kind of psychiatric institution? Which she said, I will, but it's very difficult to get you out. And so, thankfully, I think I saw her three times a week for about, I don't know, three or four years. And then, yeah, and got a bit better, then relapsed quite a lot, and then went to see someone else who was also fantastic. And just, it was such a slow process. I look back and think, God, why was I so slow? But once I stopped the physical behaviours, I went to the last therapist that I saw, who I was with for quite a long time. He said, "If if you're sick... I won't see you. And it was just the right timing. You know, I just heard it. And he was much cleverer and more intelligent than me. And I just thought, okay. But I wasn't prepared for the kind of tsunami of emotion. I had Mm. a bit of a breakdown, I think. It felt like a breakdown. Yeah, I always thought, okay, if tomorrow I'll stop being sick and tomorrow I'll eat properly and I'll do this and I'll do that and it'll all be fine. But that is just, that's not even the half of it, is it? You stop Mm. your behaviors. And then you're left with all this stuff and it's inside of you. And yeah. obviously it's emotion and feeling. And yeah, yeah it's overwhelming. Mm. I feel very fortunate to have had some such expert help. Mm. I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd have felt, I'm very tenacious. So I always, I'm always able to pick myself up when I fall down. Yeah. But yeah, God, you get in so deep, don't you? It's quite hard to remember how entrenched I was. Yeah, well, no, definitely. I mean, I, I know myself, I would never have recovered actually without help, without, although I know I had some eating disorder help, but just for therapy and being able to like 
unpick all the emotional baggage but yeah it's sad for you Gemma that you it sounds like in a way probably by the time you actually got help it was already just such an entrenched habit I guess wasn't it and such a kind of probably have become such a normal part of life and your identity yeah it was my way of life it was my secret way of life and when I was younger I happily balanced well I didn't happily but I managed to juggle the two quite successfully my external world my internal world and to all intents and purposes to lots of other people with a few dips here and there I was fine but the more it went on and the older I got the more aware I became of how dysfunctional I was mm-hmm. and how I was wasting my life and it just kept slipping just kept slipping out of my reach yeah and, no, and I knew something bad would happen I knew that so yeah gosh mm. yeah I began to get myself together mm. so do you think when you were sort of younger as well did you perhaps not even recognize just perhaps how much of it was an emotional coping strategy that you were almost just kind of in a way some of those emotions were so buried you were just kind of like functioning getting through the days but not do you think did you acknowledge that maybe this was a sort of coping strategy and there was quite a lot of stuff underneath no I was highly defended about it and I was also pretending that nothing was going on yeah so if anyone tried to talk to me about it if my mum ever dared to talk to me about it because I was clearly very ill Mm. I just you know pulled up the drawbridge sure I mean it must have been so tough for you actually you must have been you must have felt so isolated and alone with it I did because Mm. I was so ashamed I don't know what it is about eating disorders compared to say I don't know if we were sitting having a conversation with an alcoholic or a drug addict I'm sure they would talk about shame Mm. but my experience is that there's some there's some other kind of tonal quality to the shame that you have when you're stuck in an eating disorder because you're denying something that's fundamental and primary and if you don't eat you'll die yeah it's so shameful and all the people that I interviewed for the podcast you know two or three of them better now all finished the interview and felt very vulnerable and quite a lot of shame came up for everybody actually Mm. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I think I think there is so much shame, isn't there? And do you think, I mean, I know, I know for myself as well, I think for me, my bulimia was such a way of sort of dealing with all the negativity in a way, so that I could present this kind of smiling, coping, yeah. you know, <laughs> veneer. All dancing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a tricky thing as well, isn't it? Because I think you know over time in a way you've kind of really lost your identity or or this is definitely true for me you've lost your identity of who you are you kind of know who you need to be for everybody else so then there's even more shame I think as well isn't there because in a way you've come so far from who you are and actually you don't even know who you are anymore and yeah there's just such a discrepancy I guess between what you're showing the outside world and then this what feels like this horrible dark secret inner world yeah a hundred percent and I think also if you are repeatedly binging and starving and purging Mm -hmm. you're not in your body you're physically not in your body because you can't be in your body to do Mm -hmm. that to yourself so you're never fully present are you you're never fully conscious yeah because it's unbearable yeah no it's so so true yeah and so so again back to what I was saying about the unbearable bit is then coming back into your body it's very painful and I completely relate Harriet to that all singing or dancing external 
persona to keep people away and yeah telling everyone oh no I'm fine I'm fine yep yep I've got this Mm. yeah no it's so toxic isn't it I think and and I think as well like like you said when you started to stop the behaviors there's this sort of tsunami of emotions and that that's really sort of hard it's quite overwhelming isn't it when suddenly that starts to come to the surface so yeah can you say so can you say a bit more about that like you know how was that for you when yeah reality how came was it for me let me just think here that's a great question actually I'm trying to condense a few years well first of all I moved into a flat on my own I was housed because of my medical situation for which I am forever grateful and mm. I lived in one room for a year and I'm actually quite a tidy person but I lived in complete not squalor as in dirt but just mess I had all my clothes and everything piled up on tables. And and I think I probably got a job as a receptionist or something. And I just concentrated on going to therapy and doing a bit of CBT. Are you asking me how it affected me negatively, the emotions, or how I coped with it, or both? Yes, but both, really. I did quite a lot of rocking on the sofa. Mm. I did a lot of cancelling appointments, not going out, crying. I cried and cried and cried. I'd wake up Mm. crying sometimes. And... I kept my life very simple. I think I was years ago, like sickness benefit. I get my check go to the post office. I remember being, this is when I think I probably had a bit of a breakdown. I had extreme paranoia. So I'd be queuing in the post office with my incapacity benefit check. Yeah. And thank you, Tony Blair. And I'd be in the post office queue and I'd be getting closer and closer to going to the counter. And I'd feel like I was going out on stage. My heart would start racing. I get sweaty. I think, oh my God, I'm getting near, near. I'm going to be called forward. I'm going to be called forward. And suddenly I'd be called forward. And it would be like this extraordinary, surreal experience of walking to the counter. Mm. And I don't know what that's about, about from sort of being looked at. And I don't know, <laughs> these strange things happened. And I'd walk down the street and then maybe accidentally, I did this a couple of times, I'd sort of think about stepping out in front of a car. And, you know, I was just, and I was dizzy. I'd have kind of panic attacks. Yeah. I smoked obsessively and then I would like be, I'd be fine for maybe a few weeks and then I'd have a binge and relapse and do it again and get stuck back into it. So it was, you know, it was backwards and forwards. That's for Mm. sure. Um, Mm. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, it sounds like a very raw and vulnerable time, doesn't it? I guess after kind of, after the emotion being sort of held inside or just being so dissociated from it from so long and then, yeah, I was you know, very dissociated. And I think when I went to see my the final therapist, he pointed out all of this to me. And I was obviously outraged because I thought I was doing brilliantly. And then I suddenly realised it was like gathering the pieces of me, you know, in that kind of like shamanic way. And yeah, and he was asking me and suggesting things that, that I would never even dreamed about. I really got myself into a pickle in a very small space it was very hard to break out of it. I really, yeah, I really caught myself out actually for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it's sure. so, it's so introverted, isn't it? Because you don't have any time for anybody else. You're not available for anyone else. You're not available for the rest of the world because you're just focused on me, 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 and what, what I'm doing and how terrible it is for me and how awful life is. And mm. on one hand, I have huge empathy and compassion for that. And for me in that situation and other people, and then I have the other bit of me. It's just like, pull yourself together. Mm. You know, what a waste. 
Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, real dilemma, isn't it? Kind of being pulled in those two different directions. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because I think when you're just in the depths as well, you yeah. you are very sort of self-obsessed, aren't you? And, and everything it is a bit kind of poor me, but then in a way, it kind of almost you kind of have to kind of go through that don't you there's not there's not really a shortcut from that really (laughs) yeah unfortunately (laughs) yes you're right and did you find as well with yours when you were working on the therapy as well like it sounds like you've probably did a lot of talking therapy and processing feelings and that side of things as well and but were you also sort of being supported in on the more sort of symptom side of things as well with kind of regular eating kind of managing binges and purges or anything like that to a certain extent, the first person, the therapist who I mentioned, who was the nurse, I kept food diaries with her. Mm-hmm. And I did that technique of an elastic band around your wrist and you ping it when you have a craving. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy much of that. I quite enjoyed obsessively keeping the food diary because I do like a list. I still like <laughs> a list this day. Yeah. <laughs> One and a half ounces of cornflakes. Half <laughs> You know, you look back, you go, God, you had half a pea. You should have no pea. <laughs> but I also had quite a lot of alternative therapy as mm. in, well, I think a lot of eating disorder, people who suffer from eating disorders will see countless, if they can afford it, nutritionists mm. and try all sorts of ways of eating. I saw a healer. I had some shamanic work, actually. I did all sorts of alternative things that I still do to this day for a different reason. But which obviously only worked as much as I was able to admit that I needed the help because I was still pretty busy saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Yep, yep. Again, I've got this. Because mm. things don't reveal themselves, do they? Things only reveal themselves when you're strong enough to handle them. Mm. I yes. think. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true, isn't it? It's so true. And it, I mean, it's a powerful coping strategy, isn't it? I mean, it, it makes yeah. your life hell. but It does. It gets you through the day as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like having a mate, <laughs> a very good mate, who's a bit spiteful. <laughs> so, Gemma, as well, were you sort of visibly quite unwell as well? Were you, were you underweight through most of your eating disorder or did your weight fluctuate? I was underweight at the start, yes. Mm. I was diagnosed with late middle stages of anorexia, which really annoyed me because I wanted to be late stages, you know? So, yeah. not narcissistic. And did my weight fluctuate? Yes, I used to have a very puffy face. I used to have sores around my mouth, cuts around my knuckles. My skin wasn't very good. I had to have all my teeth redone. My weight was, yeah, I was always trying, Harriet, to be as thin as possible and keep my weight down. But I'm not a skinny, I'm five foot two, but I'm not skinny, skinny. So I could never be as skinny as I wanted to. Yeah. But I never got no, I never got big. And I've now realised over the past few years that I'm a bit, that whole body dysmorphic thing is also going on. So that's something to manage. Yes, I would always, and I did a lot of exercise. I used to exercise obsessively. Okay. Of so, course. Yeah, so exercise was a big part of the eating disorder as well, was it, in terms of... Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay, no, interesting. Because I guess what I was wondering as well, some sort of my thought behind the question was wondering as well, sort of how... We were sort of talking earlier about, you know, presenting this shiny exterior that everything's okay, but then wondering, because I, I think for me, I was underweight briefly, but I was pretty much normal weight for most of my eating disorder. So right. it was very easy to kind of keep it hidden in a way. And, you know, no one would have guessed perhaps apart from, you know, whoever I shared it with. Yeah. For you as well, do you think, did people around you, even though you wouldn't talk about it with them, did they know that you were really struggling? 
Yeah, my mum did, a few friends. And actually, as I began to open up with the therapist, I began to open up a few with some other people, maybe just like random people. Yeah. And I thought, oh, other people have eating disorders. Although, funnily enough, when I was at college, I was 18, or say, let's say 1920, I shared a student house. And I remember there was a guy living with us who was older. He was like a mature student. He was like 30, which is like massive, isn't it, when you're 18? <laughs> it was then. And he was yeah. bulimic. And I think that was very unusual then. And he mm. was very vocal about it. Of course, I pretended that I wasn't. Yes, I had friends who were very careful about it with me. And I think they found it difficult to marry the kind of out there, all singing or dancing bit with the me going, it's terrible, it's awful, I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, sure. I think, yeah, I think I can be very defensive and very independent. Mm-hmm. Sure. Someone, isn't it? Like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it's what kind of in a way, yeah, when you're sort of in that defensive mode as well, you have convinced yourself a bit that you're invincible, haven't yeah. you, to some yeah. extent? And I was very much, I'll deal with this on my terms. Thank you very much in my own time. No, I don't want to talk about it. Thank you. Mm, yeah, no, I sure. wish I had. I wish I had. Actually, I, one thing, though, me saying I mm-hmm. wish I had, you know, it's a lot to put on a friend. And it's mm. because, because you're all consumed by it. It's too much, I think, for particularly for a lot of relationships and lots of like intimate relationships. And all, I didn't have a relationship properly in those years just the thought was unbearable but also with friendships it's it's too much yeah it's very tricky isn't it I know I know for me I was very fortunate that I met a really good friend who's still a really good friend today and when we were both at university and I guess at that point I was starting to well actually I was still in the depths of it orally actually I was gonna say I was starting to come out of it I wasn't but um, (laughs) I was probably not at my worst but this friend as well had had some issues so I think I was really fortunate I think that we were able to sort of probably do a bit of that reciprocal kind of leaning on each other a bit but we were probably enough out of the woods so it wasn't all just so completely overburdensome almost for the other person. Did you not get competitive? No actually interestingly I mean I mean it's really interesting actually because I think as well listening to your episode when you were interviewed on your podcast for me I had a very sort of brief like I guess from my experience as a therapist I tend to think of anorexia as a bit more competitive whereas I mean I get I'm sure believe me I can be too but maybe a bit less so Whereas, and I think for me, I was very, very briefly anorexic and bulimia was much more what I was always dealing with. So, and then that was always kind of sort of shrouded in sort of shame and secrecy. And then I wasn't like, I mean, I was slim, but I wasn't sort of visibly, oh my God, thin kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. I think, may, you know, maybe not so much in that respect. So but it's very interesting because I mean, you know, maybe other people that are bulimic and I don't know about yourself, if you would have felt quite competitive. I did because I tried not to eat. Mm-hmm. So then I'd yeah. binge and then I'd throw it up and then I'd not eat again because I could have gone to, at that point it was called OA, Overeaters Anonymous. I could have gone there, mm-hmm. but I knew that I'd get there and see people and start competing. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that was a defense for not wanting to sit in a group of strangers and talk about myself. There is that as well, because that was a big deal. I wanted a one-on-one. Yeah, I was desperate for that one-on-one attention, actually. But I had long periods where I would 
starve myself and exist on very little. Mm-hmm. But so kind of thank God for the exercise because I sort of had to eat to exercise. I had to eat something. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of almost what gave you, because you were sort of moving your body in a way that's kind of generated sort of life-giving force, almost of needing nutrition to keep you going. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's interesting as well, because I think I know definitely, because I do a bit of work with inpatients, and I know definitely in an inpatient setting, when you put lots of people with eating disorders together, that can become very competitive. And that can be a real downside of the inpatient treatment that you can sort of pick up habits almost or competitiveness that you wouldn't be otherwise yeah yeah anyway so Gemma like it sounds like so the last few years for you it sounds like you're in a very different place would you say now that you could you describe your relationship with food now as peaceful yes I think so for the majority of the time I think it is a balanced nourishing relationship Mm. I am vegan for ethical, moral reasons. Having said that, being vegan does take out a certain amount of food choice for me, which is helpful. Yeah, Not all the time, but sometimes. I eat really well. I like cooking. And oh, my foot's just gone numb. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes my body goes numb when I talk about food. So yeah, and I try and I'm probably quite, my husband would sound controlling about food. I kind of like to know first thing in the morning what I, not anyone else, what I'm going to eat in the evening. Yeah. And once that decision is made, and it could only take two seconds, I'm not there for an hour thinking, oh gosh, which, which, what shall I have? Once that decision is made and I kind of know the overview of, of the day, it almost happens automatically. Mm. I'm, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But it's taken me a long time to get there. And part of my sort of rehab in that area is that I went to, I've been to Italy a lot, particularly Sicily. Okay. And when I first met my husband, he took me to Sicily. You know, Sicily's just got the nicest restaurants Mm. and the best food, my kind of food. I was eating fish then, I don't know. And that really, really, really helped because it was so obviously a completely different relationship with food. Yeah. That food being celebrated and yeah, that was terrific for me. So, yeah, I would say I'm pretty at peace with food. What does happen, so I don't act out my eating disorders anymore, but I will still get highly anxious or feel very overwhelmed or very judgmental about myself. You know, these will happen in peaks. Mm. So I recognise those feelings as part of my, I'll call it like, that's my eating disorder. These are the emotions that belong to that part of my life. So I manage those, but I certainly don't act out with food Mm. does that make sense yeah no definitely well it's wonderful to hear you know that you've come to a peaceful place with food because it's it sounds like it was really very very torturous for for years did you find it difficult eating in restaurants I could never eat in restaurants oh it's so interesting I'll have to come on your podcast I think you are coming talk about what... <laughs> I'm inviting you because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so interesting because I think for me like the eating disorder was kind of you know it was a it was a big part of my whole mental health struggle but I think a deeper part for me was much more about self-worth kind of pleasing people all of that and interestingly like it was about the food but it was also a lot about all those other things so 
you know, in some ways I've been quite, I feel I've been fortunate in some respects that I think some more foodie kind of challenges maybe haven't been such a big issue for, for me personally. So, okay. but I, I know so many people listening will be absolutely with you <laughs> there about yeah. The restaurants. Yeah, um, just always be really angry because you'd have to sit there and eat, wouldn't you? And I would be that guest that no one would ever, ever want to have at their, mm-hmm. at their dinner table. Mm-hmm. You know, give me a tomato in half mm-hmm. and then go to the toilet with everyone raising their eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's so that? torturous. Yeah. Completely it is, torturous. It? It's, such, it's such a waste of life. I mean, I've thought about this a lot. Of course, it has informed who I am and I mm. have you know used it to my advantage now but god so many it's such a waste it's kind mm. of like yeah, don't do it just don't do it to yourself but of course that doesn't that doesn't really register with people does it it doesn't and I think it's so tough isn't it because you know I think everyone listening here should like go and listen to your first podcast episode where you go through some of your history in a bit more detail but I kind of think I know when I listened to that Gemma I was thinking as well you know little young Gemma really like you didn't stand a lot of chance I think with your relationship with food from very early on maybe not yeah maybe the die was set yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's tricky isn't it but I think as well you know I know again for me a lot of my stuff probably came a bit later and I think that made it a bit easier for me as well in my recovery whereas I think when you've been you know I think of you on your podcast talking about looking in the mirror and of you and your dungarees, I think, when you were four. Yeah, a bit and older than that. But yeah, well remembered. The, the, those dungarees, God, they follow me around. Everyone goes, what about the dungarees? <laughs> <laughs> sure, but you were very little, that, weren't you? Yeah. yeah about eight yeah. or something, I think. Yeah. Mm, about eight, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very conscious of your body from such a young age. So. Yeah. Where does that come from, eh? Very conscious. Mm, yeah. Oh, but no, it's so great though to hear that you're in a different place. And it sounds like as well, like like you said, now sometimes you can get those kind of strong feelings that might come up, which don't yeah. trigger the old behaviours, but perhaps can, you know, I guess make you feel quite emotionally unsettled or, you know, yeah, not great in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yes, I can get, I think it's to do with managing anxiety. So in a way, lockdown has been terrific for me because I can just stay at home and get on with my own stuff. I don't remove that worry about going out into the outside world, which I don't, of course, we don't always enjoy it. So in a sense, I've kind of thrived. And also, I've never spoken publicly like this about my eating disorder or eating Mm. disorders. I've spoke publicly on the podcast and then listened back to it and went, oh, wow, I didn't mention this. I didn't mention that. There was so much to mention. Mm. And also, I mean, I'm sure you find the same thing. It's hard to reach back there. Mm. and remember exactly how it felt or how it was because I I want to be authentic and to give a true picture but yes Mm -hmm. I've come a very 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 long way yes thankfully thankfully there is light at the end of the tunnel I'm in the light Mm. yeah yeah well it sounds like a, a really bright light and I think yeah wonderful now that you have created your podcast and you're you know able to sort of speak to people and yes spread awareness and share your story and you know I guess it's you know something really positive has come from all of this hasn't it yeah I think so I think so and and, you know food we seem to have a a huge problem with food particularly in the west we've got so much food yeah we don't know how to deal with it it seems and we're poorly nutritioned lots of us 
And so it's not just me with an extreme story or you with an extreme story. It's everyone managing this, as I say in my podcast, this basic fundamental relationship, which yeah. is where we play out so much of our drama. So, of course, some people are, are fine. But lots of people, I think, would, would like a, I like your, your word, more peaceful. They would like a more peaceful relationship with food. Mm. So that was also why I set up the podcast. It wasn't just to speak about eating disorders. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, sure. No, absolutely. It, it, it is very far reaching, isn't it? Because I think yeah. as well, it's, it's a spectrum, isn't it? And I think we sometimes tend to think about eating disorders being this kind of unique sort of special thing over, mm. you know, but actually everybody's on the spectrum somewhere, aren't they? Between a healthy relationship with food and an eating disorder. And a lot of people are in that middle ground where they experience disordered eating and would really like to have a much more peaceful relationship with food and with their body. And I'm sure there are lots of people who are worn down by it, who've been managing their disordered eating for years and years and years. And that's tiring, you know, that's quite exhausting to live like that, even if it's quite subtle. It's always there in the background, isn't it? It's in the engine room. It's always there. Yeah, no, it certainly is. But brilliant, you know, I think because your podcast, it's giving a voice to people, isn't it? And I think it's something, yeah, yeah, many people are going to be able to listen and really resonate. Brilliant. Yes, brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gemma, for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate you um, sharing so openly. And I know that, you know, many people listening are going to get so much value from this. So thank you very much. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Harriet. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all Gemma's details in the show notes. And also do have a listen to her podcast, which is called This Food Thing Podcast. I really highly recommend it. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And if you're interested in getting more support with your relationship with food, do head over to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and there's details of my online courses and other support that I can offer. Thank you so much for listening today and do rate and review this podcast. I would really appreciate it. I always forget to say this on the end, but I would so appreciate if you would do that because it helps it reach so many more people. Thank you. I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.